Everybody, my name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackballed. This is part two of a double header tonight. Uh, we've had Dr. Michael Geist on at seven o'clock, and Dr. Geist talked to us about Bill C11. I think I learned some things, I'm not 100% sure because the bill is so weirdly complex and the government is being so secretive about it. Um, but nonetheless, uh, as usual with Dr. Geist, it was very informative. My guest tonight, um, we have been inundated lately with a lack of coverage of the Russia-Ukraine war in Canada, I, I believe. Uh, we have at the Dean Blundell Network uh, a couple people that we like to bring on to give us updates. Alex is uh, is one of the dudes that I'm thinking of right now who who comes to us from Ukraine when when he gives us his updates and, and lets us know what it's like to live inside a battlefield. And when I looked at the numbers just now, this is updated two days ago, we're looking at about 30,000 deaths, about 54,000 non-fatal injuries. A displaced amount of people is 14 million. That's crazy. Buildings destroyed at least 140,000. And the property damage, they're saying, is approximately $350 billion US. But the human toll is something that's going to always come in 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 warfare especially this type of war but then there's other things that are coming into play now i saw this headline today that says the u.s is fretting over the ukrainian tactics and raises risk putin will go nuclear there's a lot of talk lately about putin going with tactical nuclear weapons as a preemptive strike and what that means uh, for the international community especially nato so here to make sense of all this for us is the author of Connected Soldiers, Life Leadership, and the Social Connections in Modern War. And his name is John Spencer. John, how you doing, buddy? Great, Sorry, brother. I, I messed up my... It's really late for me. I, I'm one of those guys that like, it's Eastern time. Uh, it's 10.30 Eastern time. It's 8.30 where you are. But I'm usually in bed at this time. I, I, I have a weird, like... I kicked a whole bunch of things out of my life, um, you know, prescription drugs that I was on and, and alcohol and all that. And I find that I now go to sleep at like 930 or 10 o'clock at night. So th this is late for me, but I'm happy that you could join us. Um, when I put up a headline that says that um, there's a risk that Putin will go nuclear, obviously, all the headlines that I've been reading lately about this conflict has been predominantly about how Russia is not, uh, the, the war is not going how they had planned it would go. And I am curious, um, you have a extensive military background. Um, you're still part of the military, I believe. Uh, National Guard in California, is that right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And when you see a headline like that, is it is it difficult for the average citizen to, to not take it seriously. I, I know that people talk about tactical nukes since 
since really since Desert Storm, I've been hearing that phrase a lot more in 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 the last like 20, 25 years, especially. And how there's this fear that uh, that nuclear war could break out because of these tactical nukes. But is it is it the West and the media in the West trying to bait Putin into not using them? Or is there a real risk that this man, uh, his back is against the wall and it's something that is a distinct possibility? Uh, well, so there's a lot there. Um, I would say when I see a title like that, one is if you worry about Putin using a nuclear weapon, then you should also worry about Putin rewriting the global rules-based international order. Uh, and that's probably as complex for people that you're just the average person just doesn't know um, to understand. But there are, there are rules to how nation states interact with each other, how they go to war, uh, sovereign land, all these rules that have been put in place for hundreds of years but really i mean the nuclear age started in you know when the, there's only been one country that's ever used it um but even after that then all the people of the world got together and said okay nuclear weapons what are they used for mostly like there's lots of academic theory right which is all theory uh, about the use of nuclear weapons in, in the world, in war, in in World War, even in World War III, if that, God forbid, ever started. Hmm. So a tactical nuclear weapon. So one, explain to, we have to explain to people what that means. Please. So any nuclear weapon is a, will have strategic consequences, right? It'll matter to the world. Um, what Putin has tried to do in Ukraine and why Ukraine should matter to everyone in the United States and it should matter to everybody in the world is he's tried to rewrite the rules on which nations can interact with each other. He literally tried to take the second largest country in Europe by force because of the fact that Ukraine doesn't have a nuclear weapon and he does. So then he sent his military into Ukraine not to follow any of the rules of war, as in like how militaries even conduct the war if they feel like they're just, right? A just war. But a tactical nuclear weapon is a, by definition, it means it's a battlefield weapon, right? It, it has a certain um, explosive force or what we call yield. Um, it, it isn't in, in its delivery method isn't like intercontinental, right? So it's not a weapon that a nation would shoot at another nation because its survival is threatened. It means that, and it's really a Cold War term, it means in a battle between nations, you could drop one of these off, like destroy a city um, it, it, to have a battlefield effect, not to have a global um spark of mutually shared destruction right the old movies you'd watch mm -hmm. when once that first missile flies towards the united states and then more are flying the more are flying and you have what's called mutually shared destruction although the, most people understand that even russia's nuclear capabilities although it has more of numbers and, and what we're seeing in their military they haven't up haven't kept that arsenal up i personally my personal john spencer um belief when i see a title like that is is, is just not informed the number one interest of any nation, even in a terrorist state or a rogue nation um, or an evil nation, their number one concern and what we teach in military colleges around the world is survival. If Putin were to go so far as to, use, to, to set a weapon of mass destruction, nuclear, biological, chemical, he would rewrite 
in, in this war, right? So not in Saddam Hussein who'd used com- mm-hmm. chemical weapons on his, on the Kurds in, in his own country. If Putin in this era would use a tactical nuclear weapon, it would be the end of Putin, its regime, and the end of Russian Federation. It would rewrite. It would be a history-defining, changing moment. Um, does that mean if Putin loses in Ukraine, he has no alternative? Absolutely not. If Putin, which he will, lose in Ukraine, does that mean he needs to? Again, any rational person, if Putin wants to stay in 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 power a lot or stay alive, honestly, then he doesn't have that as an option. And he actually has rattled this nuclear saber for years. And it's not just because of Ukraine. He has made public statements of, hey, look, I have nuclear weapons um, many times. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a weird sable, saber rattling kind of tactic. You know, there's a cold comfort in the Cold War mutual assured destruction, isn't there? Like that, I, I remember um, being a kid and um, watching those old videos about duck and cover and stuff like that about... Um, you know, the, the way that the, that uh, if a nuclear strike happened, you know, get under your desk and cover. And I, and I used to kind of laugh at that, but also be like, holy crap, that must have been scary because the teachers must have been like, this isn't going to work. Like, we're just going to get incinerated <laughs> if we do this. I had, to, I had to do it in the military, like in an open field, like face into the blast and cover your cover yourself with the hope that the, the shot, it would just be the shockwave that, that yeah. ripples over you. But but that idea of two big nations having um, the, the, the the sort of final pragmatic thought of if I launch this, we're all dead. I don't know. I, that seems more stable than what we're dealing with today. Right. But it's the it is the rule. Right. The rule is these weapons are used for your survival. Nobody's threatening the survival of Russia. Nobody. Mm-hmm. The only people threatening the survival of an entire 40 million nation is Russia in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So he, and this is the, 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 the fallacy of understanding, and I'm not a Putin expert and I'm not a Russian expert, but the fallacy right. of he has to do something. He can't lose. He has to save face. Um, he, he has to retaliate. You know, you back the bear into a corner. It's just all, it's just not the realism of the situation in Russia. He is an autocrat who can say and do whatever he wants. And he says some crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, in, in his nation, he's free to do that. He can say, um, you know, the, the world, you know, the world is flat and the people in his in his country must believe that. So he can say tomorrow, I, I have one in Ukraine and we're now going to live in peace. He can yeah. pull out tomorrow. It doesn't. This is not a um, you know prisoner's dilemma. This is not uh, you know, sunk, uh, you know, sunk cost theory. He can act. And it, it would be a common sense decision at this point. I can't see any military alternative in which Putin wins his stated objective at this moment. Yeah, because he the, the, even the places that he's just declared annexed with the sham uh, uh, referendums that he had, most of those places are already being taken back by the Ukraine forces, are they not? Absolutely. And he never controlled them outright. So it would literally be like Mexico and Mexico one day waking up and saying, hey, Texas is mine. I voted. Uh, it's mine. That's how crazy what he's done. Um, and, and again, th- there are these rules like international law about the way nations can interact in, in, in what will be recognized by the world. And there are areas of the world which are 
literally in in conflict like okay it, it's because of the lines that were drawn in 1918 and, and when the soviet union busted up there there are like there are um you know there are debates in countries about border areas like Kashmir, azerbaijan like all these places there there is no debate on the where the border of ukraine is mm-hmm. and what is sovereign ukraine land um I'd be remiss, I think, if I didn't uh, play devil's advocate just for a second and wonder what the strategy of NATO is when they kept um, building bases closer and closer to the Russian border. What what is the strategy? I'm I'm not saying that they deserved uh, that Ukraine deserved to be attacked because of it. I'm not even saying that they were backing Putin into a corner or anything. I'm just curious what the motive was to keep moving bases closer to the border. Yeah. Um, One, the NATO... the NATO alliance is a defensive alliance. And what, like, why does Putin get to say what's too close in a country? Like every country is a sovereign country that can do what they want. If you want to build a base in Poland, build a base in Poland. And that being the reason for this war was busted. Like one, it wasn't hit what, what Russia stated in in Putin in writing that he doesn't believe Ukraine should exist as a country. Um, Mm -hmm. It isn't the reality of, even Ukraine wants a democratic nation said, okay, if, if that's your issue with me, I won't, I won't join NATO. And he's, and he's still invaded. Um, what's the reasoning for building defensive bases in your country? I mean, every country's again, number one pursuit is survival. And by, so the rationale, this is about NATO. What did Putin do? And so the biggest strategic blunder in the world in, of the modern era was, using that as an argument. And now literally the most neutral countries in history, Finland and Sweden are now on his border. He just doubled his border with NATO. I, I mean, I, I honestly think the rule book in which allowed him to invade Ukraine is kind of is wrong, but it is the rule book, right? Na- Ukraine wasn't a member of NATO and, mm-hmm. and, and there are standards for joining the membership and we all have to, every nation has to vote. Um, but it's a historic moment that if that was the rationale on how awful it went for Putin that now Finland and Sweden, I mean, Finland is, I don't know if you've ever seen that on the map. It's huge. And, and they actually kicked the Soviet Union's butt. I mean, Finland? you were trying. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that. Didn't yeah. Know that. <laughs> oh yeah. I the, didn't know the, Finland ever gotten into a war. <laughs> yeah, the, little yeah, I know. The winter war. Uh, look, yeah. You think about the winter soldier, like the winter war, it's yeah. huge. Uh, it's, it, this, this is the reality of one, you know, if I see a title like that, I, I just wish people were more informed because if not, they listen to different voices, right? There, there is every one of us to include the United States should use our system to, to put forth the facts on who we are, what we stand for, what are the actions that we're going to take? What is the actions of our enemy, right? Russia and China mm. have been the stated enemies of the United States before this war for a long, you know, because they 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 have done things to put them in that position. Um, fire. There, we had a uh, comment there. Fire in effect said um, the U.S. said the same thing. Putin is saying when Russians put nukes in Cuba, is the difference between that and what um, Putin deals with with NATO simply water? Like, like there, there, there's almost no legitimate reason that Russia could have said that they're putting nukes in Cuba other than to have an offensive tactical advantage. Yeah. Because 
the United States is surrounded by water on the east and west. So there, there were and south. So there wouldn't be a um, any other strategic reason to to put anything there. Is that really the main difference that Russia is um, that that NATO was building bases in sovereign countries? And Russia was taking the tiny island of Cuba and putting nukes there just as a provocation. Is is that the difference? Um, the, the, those are definitely major differences um, in both the reasons for the actions, right? So the reason that, like you said, the reason Russia put um, was putting a nuclear weapon that close is because it could range and threaten the United States' safety. Um, there's nothing going on in Europe that was threatening the safety of Russia. Back to that, you know, objective fact there was nobody threatening the borders of russia but did those russia, nato bases have nukes no absolutely no. not okay no, absolutely not matter of fact the, the 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 trajectory of nuclear weapons has been actually down not up um those bases didn't even have patriot inter, in, interceptors which are contentious where you put things that can intercept other people's missiles um, right okay. that has been contentious in recent history but you know you, Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons. Um, it, matter of fact, it does lead to the theory of you know, the, that mutual de deterrence. There's, there's something called strategic deterrence. You know, having the weapon brings you safety. Um, it, where other people believe that that shouldn't be the case, but it's the reality of the world. And that's why, again, Russia can't use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine because it, it is the surest path to its destruction. Yeah, the 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 war as it's taking place right now, it, it, it's hard for me to um, to sort of wade through like, you know, the world is sort of on Ukraine's side. Um, there's a few countries that are, I guess, on Russian side. The political situation in the United States is, is really interesting because when I was a kid growing up, you know, from Rocky movies to, you know, just regular news, it was there was always sort of this demonstrative anti-Russia kind of vibe, especially from Republicans. And they're awfully quiet now. And I, and I don't understand, like, the political reason as to why um, they are not saying things like, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the old KGB agent needs to go down. Da, da, da. Is, is polarization to blame for that? Absolutely. I, like, is that it? Yeah. Is it and there are plenty of people. I mean, we still have bipartisan support, but we're so the polarization and, and divisiveness, it, you have to oppose the other side if you're not the party, you're the dominant party or whatever. But there, are, the, I'm actually, I'm proud that from day one of this war, we've had bipartisan support as in voting hmm. to continue and lead the world in our aid of freedom, right? This is about freedom and, and, and democracy and um, maintaining the global order that that is assuring our uh, prosperity, right? Because that, that's what people don't understand. Even economically, us helping Ukraine is about our economic stability because dude's upsetting the entire global international order. And when when China doesn't even back you, like, whoa, nobody has backed Russia at this point in saying that what he's doing is justified. Um, it, it's not even axis versus, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's literally a rogue leader in a rogue nation not even actually acute in a war if it was justified in their mind. So yes, in, in in today's politics, you have to oppose the other side, no matter no matter if it is actually at the core of our values or who we are. Um, but that's it's a small segment I mean, that does get a lot of attention because it, if it bleeds, it leads. 
we have bipartisan support for Ukraine, and, and I don't see that changing even if there's a red swing come November. What would a Ukrainian NATO membership do to uh, the, uh, you know, like, what would it do to this war if if if, if they actually, I, it doesn't look like they're going to get membership like in the next, you know, six months or something, right? Like, it's a long process, right? Um, it can it can be sped up. Um, there, there's some people who say there's no, you can't do it with a country in conflict. Um, you know, basically when there's active contests, that's actually not a written rule. But absolutely, um, it ain't going to happen until they achieve full victory. And, and this conflict ends as in its current fashion, which is inevitable. Uh, it's not going to happen because every nation has to vote, which is you. I've learned even from this that every nation has to vote that a new member be added. And, and it's crazy how like Turkey can like require all the other nations to give them stuff to vote yes for for a nation that is clearly should be i don't know if you've seen that but NATO, no is that like a quid pro quo you want my vote you got to give me something absolutely so turkey's been doing that for finland and uh sweden's which are like there's no reason not to um but they're like all like literally we're down like three nations and but turkey had, had first said no and then he said well if you give me f-35s if you uh you know cast out these people that i don't like that are actually in your country then I'd vote yes, which is just, it's politics, right? All war is politics by other means. Some of it's very overt and some of it's covert. Are, are you surprised? Um, like when, before the war started, would you have predicted that it would have gone this way for Russia? Like not, not because you were for Ukraine, but just as a tactical kind of uh, an opinion where you didn't, let's say you didn't have uh, a side that you were kind of rooting for or whatever. But, um, and I should let the audience know, and I believe this is true. The handbook that you wrote on urban warfare uh, was used by the Ukrainian military, the, the part of the military that was in charge of training civilian forces. Is that correct? Absolutely. And okay. it was mass printed by the civilians themselves. So over 100,000 copies were printed by Ukrainian publishers in Ukrainian early in the war when it, this was more about civilians like Red Dawn, like going out and fighting in their own streets and protecting their their homes and their families and their cities. Um, I think that's amazing. Like you're basically one of the cogs in the uh, in the in the wheel of warfare for Ukraine and 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 the successes that they're having defending their country. But before the war started, is this something that you would have predicted with Russia versus Ukraine that it would be going so badly for Russia? Absolutely not. I don't think anybody um, no, even people that I respect that are Russia experts, like I'm not a Russia expert. I'm, a, I'm an urban warfare expert, right? So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a one trick pony. Even people that I know that are Russian experts did not know the rot of the Russian military. Everybody to include, you know, I, I worked in the Pentagon, believed Russia was the second most powerful military in the world. Matter of fact, I, I sat through briefings where they had beliefs that the Russian military was advancing the U.S. military and things like artillery in all this nobody knew the rot that was below the surface of the russian military and the some of that you can't discover until you engage with your enemy Um, Mm -hmm. and this is what we've discovered so i would have never imagined the ukrainian army one i was i had also not had experience with the ukrainian people right this does come down to a culture and a people's willingness to fight. And I think it is justified to do comparisons with other nations like Afghanistan. 
Um, the only thing that saved Ukraine in the beginning was a nation up defending their right to be free, democracy. Russia believed, and I think they had good reason that they could subjugate millions by force because there is lots of history to show that if you present a military force, um, you can achieve your goals by just fear. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Yeah, I may have asked you this last time, but do you think that it was a mistake to just allow Russia to annex Crimea? Did that give them, did that embolden them to do what they're doing today? I mean, globally, absolutely. Um, but I will, will say, so Ukraine, like you said, I, it, it's become an, a, a war of good versus evil. It mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily that could be argued in the beginning. Um, but it's the way that Russia's present, fought the war that has garnered Ukraine over 50 nations to include the global the leader of the free world, full support. Ukraine had, unlike Crimea, um, Ukraine had to show that it was willing to fight for its complete survival. I'm not an expert in, in I just feel in, in deep in as a person that Ukraine had to show the world that they were willing to fight for their freedom. And that garners global support. And then they fought just this masterclass of the narrative all the way up to today um, in how they fight um, and what they stand for is what the, the almost every of the, the 200 plus nations of the world also stand for human rights, freedom of individual rights, you know, genocide is bad. War crimes are bad. You know, all these things that the world should stand up for um, that in Crimea, because of the way that the, the operation was executed, right. Through this new generation of warfare with, um, actually turning it into a, 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 an argument that you're liberating a country, you know, a part of a country that wants to be Russian. There is that narrative has now fallen silent because it's just ridiculous because the Ukrainian people have shown the world with their actions that that's not true. When I had you on the first time, it was, it was, I think the war was two months old or something like that. How stark is the difference, especially if you're a civilian fighter who is conscripted? How, how stark is the difference between um, sort of being holed up in a city and defending that city from an invasion and now pushing the enemy back to their borders? In the, from an urban warfare perspective, how, how I mean, I know there's a, there must be a, a stark difference, but how would like how would the military adjust? How would morale be adjusted like? 
it, it would is it seen do you, do you become invigorated and pumped up with the idea of like now we're pushing them back this is great like how do you describe the mindset and the tactics of the difference between being holed up in your city and then pushing back yeah there it's night and day i mean all war there's both offense and defense but two months ago and this is before I, I visited, right? I went after we talked, I went to Ukraine myself. I had to see some of this stuff with my own eyes. Um, this was a nation defending itself. But the Ukrainian military at the time was a very small, untested, uh, developing force. We're six months down the road. Now Ukrainian people haven't been conscripted. That's the difference between fighting a volunteer army, fighting for their freedom, and fighting a constricted, drafted, forced military in a foreign country fighting for the wrong reasons. Oh, I thought that the Ukrainian military, uh, uh, the government um, said that any 18-year-old and over must must go into the, at least, I don't know, it, it wasn't. So they, they did martial law, so nobody from eight, so no male from 18 to 60 could leave the country. Oh, okay. Um, they were told to resist, and they did, but the, the way the, so there's mandatory service, which is, not conscription it is um you you part of being a citizen is you serve but they they have had so many volunteers and these so this is when i talked to you two months ago you know civilians just in civilian clothes were mm -hmm. fighting um just tens of thousands of them well those joined voluntarily the military so much so that like my driver when i was in ukraine was you know a 21 year old guy it's like hey you're going to serve he's like you know, the way that the the call-ups haven't happened like so the mandatory service has been only with veterans so far because oh, they've okay. had enough veterans could you see a you know, could they say that you have to serve absolutely they could based on mandatory service um at this point the what what you, uh russia has is doing is the opposite of that right they're they're doing call-up conscription uh of calling back anybody who had already served mandatory service which then go into a, a reserve force, which is just, okay. I served in the military once. Now for the rest of for my next 30 plus years, I have to come back if you call me. Uh, and most of them are voting with their feet. I don't know if you've seen this, James. So they called up 200,000, the Russians did, saying, hey, come fight for Russia in Ukraine. And you most of them from, fled, I think. Yeah, like 400,000 to 700,000 men fled the country. Yeah. That's, that's just insane. And should tell you a lot about is this a just war for Russia? It is not a threat to their survival, and their people know it. Is it a proxy war? Absolutely. We don't we don't hear about that that too often, right? Like we want. I think the um, look. I'm on Ukrainian side. I, I see it also as a sort of good versus evil thing, and and you know, uh, obviously, I I I think Putin's you know a complete, um, completely corrupt individual. But the the media, um, the the veneer of the Zelensky being the hero, and I know he's done some great things and stuff. And I talked to you about this a little bit the last time, where I didn't like the photo shoot and stuff like that. But yeah, I do remember now, that. Yeah, yeah. Now it feels like um, the story is for me what the media isn't really saying. When I think that them not saying it kind of emboldens critics, and that is that it's a proxy war. Um, you know, money is sent there, weapons are sent there, but you never hear that phrase, proxy war. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's, it, it leads to complexity and, and people want things simplified for them. They want to understand faster. Um, you know, the United States military is in like 164 countries. 
um, proxy warfare is again in that rule book of what nation states do. Like I don't like I have enemies of the world. I don't have to fight them. I can I can send weapons to other people who are fighting them. And if it weakens my enemy, absolutely. Uh, even if it wasn't a fight of good and evil, right? And, and you know, people like references. So like we were supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, yeah. to, which assisted in the fall of the Soviet Union, right? In, in empire. We but it provided, also, there was also blowback, right? Absolutely. If the if you think about the madrasas that were stood up in along the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, much of what we had to deal with later in, in the global war on terrorism was stuff that we 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 financed and helped create. Yeah, that's the tough part because I think that, um, you know, as a, as a student of recent history and as a person who st I started getting into politics uh, uh, during Desert Storm. And, uh, you know, I was I was sort of in like fascinated by the culture of the military. And I was and, you know, th there was a part of me at the time that was almost like, wow, I would totally love the opportunity to defend my country if it ever came to that. But how ignorant are North Americans to what it's like uh, to experience what the Ukrainian people are experiencing right now to have a war inside their own country? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, and that's what I actually felt. So I, you know, I served in, in the, twice in, in, in Iraq, one in the invasion and one later during their, really the height of their civil war as they're trying to create a new Iraq, which ended up falling apart as soon as we left because of sectarian reasons. Um, the the thing, the stories and the people I was meeting in Ukraine was more analogous to our own story of breaking free in, uh, of of British control in in our revolution and who stood up to fight Lexington Concord. The stories that I was watching in Ukraine are more analogous to that than anything else that I've studied in history. Um, and that is the deal. Like the the un the a lot of people in Ukraine don't like Zelensky. Um, I don't know if I ever, if we talked about that, but the unity. I tried to, but you were like, he's a hero, James. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, that's politically. But the, the 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 you know hard times create hard people. The unity. We were just talking about our device. Like literally, we have people that will oppose like the stupidest stuff just because it's the other political party. There is such unity in Ukraine that it's it is so pure and uh, almost envious in their day to day lives in their unity as a people. Like they'll come out of this, right? That's why I, I, Ukraine is not Ukraine that was 2014. Ukraine is not the Ukraine that was at the beginning of this year. They have created a new nation and a new people that have banded together, right? That's that's amazing. And it, it gave me an amazing feeling while I was there. And when I'm here in my community and I watch our politics and our, you know, January 6th, all of this, um, it, it, it's really sad that we are so divided because after nine 11, we were, we were at the height of our, you know, we had another um, challenge to who we are as a people that united us. We need uniters in our country what Zelensky has done is just kept the fire that was that was lit lit for this whole time, which is hard to do as the war drags on. But that unity in the Ukrainian people is insane. Yeah, I remember seeing a poll um, 
when uh, it was like 2015 or so, and it was uh, it was a it was a poll of registered Republicans, and it was something crazy like 31 percent of registered Republicans had more respect for Vladimir Putin than a Barack Obama. And I'm just like, holy shit! Like I I feel like if aliens invaded, like Mega would be like, uh, <laughs> do they have good weapons? Because <laughs> Because I'd love to shoot me some libtards or something. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Some some progressives might be at the end of my laser beam because it's so divided there. Uh, is there is the uh, off topic? But I'm just curious now that we're talking about it. Is there anything that you it could, could war unify the United States if it came to their shores? You think? So absolutely, it would. Do I think that's in any realm of the possible? Um, no. One, we're the most powerful nation in the world. So we have unique borders. Here's the water borders that um, could somebody strike our interests, right? So that's what the, you know, uh, the thing about the U.S. military is, is it's we spend our tax money to have this powerful military to not only defend our country as in the homeland, but defend our interest in our prosperity. So that's where it gets complex. And, and, and I've had the beauty of having a you you learned and have an education and, and curiosity of learning how this works, how geopolitics works. Yes, absolutely. It wouldn't unite us. Um, but I think that a lot of this is leadership too. Uh, look, every, I, um, even for an American not to understand that the president that is in office is your president is a major issue. Like I didn't, I, I don't, I didn't, you know, I, there's some presidential elections. I didn't even vote doesn't matter like our leader is our leader by our process and that's it if we can't agree to that we have issues but those issues are how to resolve those is a wicked problem but yes adversity creates unity and that's why you know, after 9-11 we had great unity for uh, for a while yeah, you know, I, I remember that very well I remember uh, George Bush being at uh, ground zero with his uh bullhorn and you know saying that you know, they're going to hear from all of us soon and and i remember thinking to myself at the time like 9 11 i i don't know if you've uh if you've ever talked to non-americans about how they felt on 9 11 i was living in toronto and i i i i was watching you know I, whatever i was watching was interrupted and and they had that sort of like still camera on a live shot on uh on the towers one of them was smoking. And then we saw live that plane come in from uh, the right side of the screen and hit the second building. And I was on the phone with a friend and we didn't say anything for like 45 minutes. We were just watching this screen take place. Like it was one of those uh, transformational moments for people that were outside of America. And, uh, you know, the, the unity that you're talking about was palpable. And then um, I, I guess it went away probably around 2003 uh, before that, probably, but I mean, it really went away 2003 because of how divided the public was over the war in Iraq at the time. Do you think that um, when you when the dust settles with Ukraine and and Russia, this might be a question that you can't answer, but do do you think that the um, political capital that Zelensky's been able to uh, garner up until now, most of the time, those leaders will last another year or two, and then they're gone. Right. That's like the Churchill effect sort of thing. Absolutely. Or the George Washington effect. Uh, yeah. Uh, he stepped down. They asked him to do many more years 
and and that's what good leaders do is recognize that the 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 moment that the, that the nation when the nation needs you you rise to the moment or some don't um and then when when that moment is over the system continues and that's why you rose to the moment so absolutely i think um after ukraine achieves it's it's just it's going recognizing that the this is where i get frustrated just as a you know a normal guy um that people don't recognize russia's invasion of ukraine as a history altering moment unlike what about isms around the world 9-11 was a a history changing moment i think unlike any other moment since then um, and, and a lot of people play what about because there's lots of bad things happen all around the world but because of who it was how it was executed um that was a history changing moment that has nothing to do with whether i i mean i care about ukraine because like you said good versus evil if i didn't if i just cared about you know if i'm some type of isolationist it was a history changing moment and i'm proud that the world like just like people that had nothing to do with the united states joined the united states and in, in, after 9 11 is that the united states has led the way in helping ukraine defend itself would you think um would you say that the, in, in a totally different way that the drone program is a history changing tactic? No, I mean, it's, that's a, so we have these things, you know, called revolutions in military affairs. So things that all fundamentally change the way warfare is conducted, nuclear weapons, machine gun, uh, you know, the tank airplane, and heli- you know, yeah. submarine. Yeah. No, I think the drone is an evolution of aerial capabilities. Um, it is a, you know, we have these fancy words about democratization of technology. You know, when, when military capability is available to the masses and you have a levee en masse, what they call it when you when the French were the first to start with this, I'm fighting for my nation. Everybody's a part of this fight. Um, those are revolutions of military affairs. The drone is an evolution of aerial capabilities. There's a little bit of the element of where anybody can pick up a drone and have an impact if the other military is so inept that it'll they allow it right just Um, like the ied the ied wasn't something new that to military affairs you to to militaries fighting in in counterinsurgencies it's just they you know put it in you put it on scale the iranians taught them how to do it better you know these kind of things so no it's funny when you're a lay guy like me that doesn't really understand a lot of the the way that military operates. But I remember growing up and, and seeing Princess Diana being uh, really anti-landmine uh, because it was seen as inhumane. And then like 15 years later, drones are dropping bombs on people, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know why I'm laughing, but it just seems like such a uh, paradox. Yeah, I mean, so there are people in this world and, and good for them, but that's their meaning in life is to hope for the pursuit of, of, of a world without war. I think that only the dead know the end of war and there's always going to be war. Um, there is a, there can be peace dividends, but the history of the of human race is that there, there will be war, but this is why we established all these alliances to prevent wars, right? All these mm. organizations and alliances and treaties and, and global standards um, that should cause um war not to happen as frequently a lot of people that i know and a lot of conservatives that i've talked to i talked to general spaulding about a year ago i think about um 
about what the future holds. And it's always talks about China. China is like the sleeping giant. China is like the, the next great fight. And Taiwan is going to be the spark plug that causes the, the next war. Do you have any thoughts about that? And do you think that China has imperialistic goals or are they mostly just like seeking to uh, enrich themselves economically by mining in Africa and places like that in Afghanistan and things like that? So it's, again, it's not my area of expertise, but I dabble in your national security a little bit. So I actually think um, if you view the four forms of a nation's power, right, it's diplomatic, information, military, and economic. Does China aggressively try to um, lessen another country like the United States power? Absolutely. Um, so they do intellectual property stealing, you know, alliances, actions that are meant to degrade your enemy proxy warfare. Um, there, there are a few places in the world that aren't connected to this global world that we've created, right? Whether it's economically, militarily, um, and, and there are there are contested areas even within between China and the United States, right? Taiwan, um, places like that. I say yes, absolutely judge a China by its actions. Is it threatening the U.S. forms of power in the U.S. way? Um, ways of life, absolutely by its actions, not just in Africa, but around the world. Um, and, and there's lots of people that are better experts than I am on that. Same thing with Russia. Um, same thing with Iran and North North Korea. Um, that's why we're a global leaders. And the only superpower left is because we have both a defensive capability. Um, it's the power of our relationships around the world and, and our you know, our diplomatic power, right? That diplomatic power. And I actually got that in an interview today that the people think that today are more people interested in forming a relationship with the United States. Like there's nobody escaping, um, you know, Ukraine to go live in Russia. There's, there's nobody escaping uh, there. People want to live in the, you know, in, in the West. Um, China, I will say also say that there are, people within the global community that need an enemy hmm. right so sometimes china is made out to be the sleeping giant enemy that we need to keep our our constituents investing in national security yeah i mean uh you know sometimes i want to ask people like yourself uh questions that have to do with sort of um like like we don't tolerate china uh, disrupting, say, the uh, like internet or or patent pirating or things like that, but we do the same thing to them, right? Like this is, this is so. So I, you make me think of a, 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 this amazing moment that I had at West Point while teaching there, and we had the um, General Clapper, I think it was, National Security Advisor and a yeah. director who talked about Russia getting into our elections. You said yeah. that's espionage. If somebody would have brought to me on my desk, leading our intelligence service and say, hey, you can influence the politics of another country at no cost, almost without anybody knowing it, that's a good day. Uh, well, you've absolutely. done it. You've done it yeah. many times. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. 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 Sometimes it didn't go well for us, right? Iran and other places. Um, absolutely. That's what, again, this is the rule book of nation states, right? Espionage. Um proxy warfare. It is the world we live in. Russia is outside of this. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it is a rogue, it is becoming a rogue nation. It has nuclear weapons that should concern every citizen of the world. Um, I just have a couple more questions. One of them, though, I just thought of it. I had Reality Winner on earlier this week. Um, she was the whistleblower who who uh, leaked classified material to uh, to the Intercept when she was a translator at the NSA, um, and it was talking about the Russian interference in the 2016 election. What are your thoughts on whistleblowers like her, or just uh, people like uh, Edward Snowden or Assange or Chelsea Manning? Do you have uh, a, a sort of patriotic idea of of what they are and that they shouldn't have blown the whistle, or do you think that some of them or or one of them or whoever uh, might have had good reason to do that? That's that's a tough one. So it put it, it does challenge my personal beliefs versus my study of of the world. My personal belief is that there's. Um, you know, I live by a code and I, I raise my family in a code of honor and respect and loyalty. And there is responsibility as being a member of a nation. You have responsibility to that nation. Absolutely. There are there have been times when our nation is on the wrong track and there have been great Americans who stood up and blew blown the whistle, which then corrects the the system that is going off. But if the individual actually puts in their actions that are, are, are kind of caked in this greater cause um, are actually putting the members of the country at risk. So th- that's my thoughts towards Snowden. He released information that actually uh, put other Americans at, at risk, not just saying there's an issue. There, 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 is a, there is a spectrum on whistleblowing to where you, Daniel yes. Ellsberg being probably one of the good ones and Julian Assange maybe being probably one of the best. Is that sort of the spectrum or yeah, deep throat versus Assange? You know, yeah. some people like you have to, you have to analyze their intentions um, and, and what they, they actually are, are causing. Uh, it's history. Um, I have my personal feelings that uh, some of them I agree with. And some of yeah. them I don't. Um, yeah, it, no, it, you're in a tough. I, I, you know, I, I won't ask you questions like that again because you are, <laughs> you are in a tough spot because you don't want to, because of your position and because of your your career in the military. I, I imagine it might be tough to be like, yes, reality winner really should have leaked those classified documents. I can't imagine you really saying that, right? So no, I mean, I, I, I you know, so technically, I'm a member of a, a still a California State Guard. Um, when I started helping Ukraine, I had to disassociate from because I know how the system works. Like the U.S. U.S. Uh, government could not be assisting Ukraine and killing you know, without the process. So when I created that manual for Ukraine civilians, I had to disassociate from any association with the U.S. government, and that's I'm okay with that. Um, there is there are human aspects, and and that's why again I live my I live my life by a code. Um, to do good in some people, some of these people that have not all of them, their intentions weren't good. Um, even if they say they were, they wouldn't have done the things that they, they, they did, but it is what it is. Um, and I know that wartime is never really a time for predictions, but um, uh, we'll, we'll wrap with this. 
if you had to guess, how would you say um, the next uh, few months will will go uh, in in Ukraine, like tactical nukes notwithstanding? Um, you know, are, are, is the momentum shift enough for them to put it away, or is it impossible to tell? And we could be there for years. Now, I think that what they've shown the world is that the, um, if they continue to see receive the level of aid, if not more, that they've already gotten, that they can put that to use, and, and they're on the path to victory. Um, they're getting stronger as a military. Well, which is what you know, General Milley, the, the Joint Chief of Staff, said a couple months ago, is that we want Russia weak so it can never do this again. Um, they're getting weaker every day. They're, they're doubled down now with this mobilization, and, and they could mobilize you know, draft. They're not mobilizing reserves, just to be clear. Um, they could double down and send more Russian uh, people into Ukraine to die. It's, so I think this war ends in, in months, not years, because of the just from a military analysis, Russia is it's so weak. It isn't you know out, but it it's so weak, and we've given Ukraine such sophisticated weapons, and they're using them to at great success. That um, Russia is in just, just such a precarious position in, in multiple fronts. Uh, I see. You know, there's a common sense thing for Putin and Russian military to do. They're not going to do that. They're going to. So over the next few months, we're going to see thousands and thousands and thousands of Russian soldiers die. Um, winter is going to fundamentally change this war. Uh, fighting in the winter is night and day to fighting in the summer. Um, and they're going to continue to get pushed back until either somebody makes a decision in, in Russia to change the trajectory of the Putin regime in the Russian military, whether that's a, you know, I can't make any predictions. I, I can predict that Russian military will continue to lose in Ukraine and at great cost. It's still going to cost the Ukraine. There's no bloodless war. It's still costing Ukraine blood and treasure, but it, the, the scales of loss are, are, are heavily weighted. Um, and we're going to continue to see that. And eventually Ukraine is going to cause the, the, Russian military to culminate all over the front of its line um, and, and actually push back to even 2014 boundaries of its of its country. John Spencer, I love having you on. Um, I always feel like uh, before you come on, I'm like, I don't really know much about the military. And then after you leave, I know a little bit more, but I still feel dumb. <laughs> because I, I, me too, man. I'm just a student of this stuff. You know, I just have had a blessed you know, life and, and yeah. now a blessed job. Well, listen, I appreciate the time that you take. <clears throat> I'd love to have you back in a, in a month or two just to see uh, what, what the landscape looks like then. So again, I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. John Spencer, urban warfare expert uh, and the author of Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, and the Social Connections in Modern War. I love talking to him. He's uh, he's down to earth. Uh, he's he's a great military professional. Uh, he's got a good head on his shoulders. He doesn't. Uh, he, there, there's nothing unreasonable about him, and he always gives us the straight goods. And I and I appreciate that. Um, it's been a long day, so I'm just going to split. But tomorrow, don't forget, we have Ann Schwartz on the show. Tomorrow is the premiere of the Jeffrey Dahmer documentary on Netflix in the United States. And the reason why I wanted to have Ann Schwartz on it is because she is the author of Dahmer, 
oh, I always forget the name of the book. Now I have to go back again. She is the author of Monster, uh, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. <clears throat> but more importantly, Ann Schwartz is the reporter that actually broke the story in 1991 of Jeffrey Dahmer and his killings. So she is basically a historical figure when it comes to that story. And she is going to be live with us tomorrow at 7 p.m. So please tune into that. Uh, big thanks to Dr. Michael Geist earlier today at 7. Uh, and thank you to Dean for joining me. And a big thanks to John Spencer. And we will see you next time on Blackball. I'm Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. the blue hotel I wanna live at the blue hotel the podcast that goes everywhere the imagination dares it's for the open minded the pleasure seeker it's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd.